Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, producer, and we talk in depth about their fave genre film, maybe one that influenced their own work. Today, I'm so very happy to welcome actor, writer, director, Heather Graham. Hi, Heather. Hi. Um, For those who don't know Heather, I don't know where you've been, um, but I will give you a quick introduction to her work. Heather Graham moved to Los Angeles in the 1980s to pursue an acting career, earning roles in License to Drive, Drugstore Cowboy, and I Love You to Death before getting cast in the second season of Twin Peaks and then Fire Walk With Me. Somewhere in there, she put in two years as an English major at UCLA. She scored roles in Dickstown, Six Degrees of Separation, and Swingers. Her role as Roller Girl in Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights became iconic. Then came Austin Powers' The Spy Who Shagged Me, Bowfinger, Arrested Development, Scrubs, The Hangover, Californication, Angie Tribeca, etc., etc., etc. She's done movies, TV, voiced video games, comedies or drama. Directors have found her to be magnetically likable, and now she's written and directed her first feature film, a romantic comedy called Half Magic, starring herself, Angela Kinsey, and Stephanie Beatriz as three new friends uh, who do some light witch magic to try to (laughs) manifest better lives and men for themselves. So, Heather... Could you tell us today why you chose Fatal Attraction real quickly? I don't know. I like Fatal Attraction. It just popped in my mind. And, uh, I mean, who doesn't like Fatal Attraction? Well, the girl at the video store uh, <laughs> who didn't know who it was, what it was. Oh, really? I was like, oh, I'm old. I'm very old. I have to tell you what the plot of Fatal Attraction is. <laughs> oh, my God. You should be required to watch it, you know? I think so. Um, for those who haven't seen Fatal Attraction, like this, the lovely woman at the video store, um, today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. My motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you want to pause and peep Fatal Attraction first, go ahead now. (laughs) And if you're back, let's introduce Fatal Attraction real quick. Written by James Dearden and directed by Adrian Lyne in 1987, Fatal Attraction stars Michael Douglas as everyman lawyer Dan Gallagher. He has a funny, smart wife played by Ann Archer and a funny little daughter. Uh, Life seems great, but still he's tempted by a sexy colleague, Alex Forrest, played by Glenn Close. One weekend when Dan's wife Beth is out of town, Dan sleeps with Alex and has a torrid elevator sex-having 48-hour fling. But he still loves his wife. And this whole thing with Alex is just a fluke that he quickly regrets and wants to forget, especially when Alex suffers from a mental break and slits her wrists. Um, And that happens because Dan is going back home to his wife. He cleans her up and says goodbye, but Alex starts calling Dan and bothering his family. Oh, and also she says she's pregnant from their fling. She shows up to Dan's work. She calls his house until he has to change their number. And then she shows up at his new house. Things reach a fever pitch when she subjects the family pet to a terrible, watery end, forcing Dan to tell his wife about the affair. But that doesn't stop Alex from terrorizing the family yet. Uh, (laughs) There is a really interesting ending to that. Um, Heather, I... I wanted to ask you first, um, because Michael Douglas and Ann Archer are phenomenal performers in this, but it's Glenn Close who makes this movie kind of float for me. And before this, she was playing all these sweet kind of homemaker characters. And this was a huge, huge departure for her. Um, And and I'm thinking about how big a moment that must have been for her to pursue this 
role that people didn't think she should have. Even Adrian Lyons said maybe, maybe not. We, you know, she can't be sexy. But I mean, in your career, have you had moments where you knew that there was a role that you had to do that was going to be a little bit outside of what people knew you for, but you went after it anyway? Well, I'm really grateful I got to be in Boogie Nights because at that point, you know, I never played a sexy role and it was really a fun thing to be in, a a role that sexy. And uh, yeah, I'm so glad I was in that. Did you have to like uh, tell anyone that, yes, I, I feel comfortable with this? Yeah. I mean, they said, are you comfortable with the nudity? I said, yes. I mean, but nothing compares to getting your own movie written and directed. That was like jumping through 30 million hoops. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and also in your movie, so in Half Magic, you've got both Stephanie Beatriz and Angela Kinsey, who are playing a little bit against type. Because um, right. both of them are known for their roles in sitcoms. You've got Brooklyn Nine-Nine in The Office. Um, for Right. And they're kind be- of known for more bitchy characters. Like, they both yes. are super tough on their show. And in my movie, I think they're a lot more... Um, soulful and emotional and sweet. You see their loving hearts. Yes. But they're also sexy. <laughs> <laughs> but So why why did you cast them against type? Well, to be honest, they both auditioned and they, they gave a great audition and they just seem like the character to me and I just am a huge fan. I, both, I think they're both dramatically amazing actresses and also comedic. That's very hard to do both things at once because some people are amazing dramatically and they make you feel things and other people just make you laugh, but they can do both of those things, which is, is hard to do. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, Beatrice, uh, Stephanie Beatrice was in um, a movie about uh, 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 traumatic rape. Oh, my God. She was amazing in that. The Light of the Moon. I seriously thought that was an Academy Award winning performance. So you get that and then followed up by Half Magic as a film critic watching that kind of thing. It's it's really lovely to get um, a, a full idea of an of an actor's um, value and their their talent when you see two movies like that back to back. She's a chameleon. And then if you think of her show, people that have watched my movie and only seen her on the show. Are, are, are just blown away like, oh, I thought she was that character on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, that she was kind of this tough cop person. Does it give you like a nice feeling of power that you can do this for an actor, that you can <laughs> give them? I guess I feel like I have, um, I know what it's like to be an actor and I know what it's like to have so much in you, but only be seen for a certain part of that. So I do feel mm-hmm. like you can see someone and just go, wow, that person's so talented. And I just wanted to show them as these people that you just fall in love with. And I could I could see that in them. I knew other people would, too. One of the things that people always say to new directors um, is that maybe they should do a short first. And I'm thinking of Fatal Attraction was based on a short film, actually, that James Dearden had written. I know, right? That's so cool. So he had written it. It's it's amazing to think that he was able to expand a short film um, that he did for the BBC. um, And Sherry Lansing had seen it and she knew it had potential. In three days of meetings, they decided, you know, what kind of path this film could take. Um, but it was originally called Diversion. And it it's really interesting that they chose to make Glenn Close's character pregnant mm. in, in the feature-length film. But it's, I mean, Sherry Lansing had a really tight leash on Dearden because he hadn't done a feature film yet. Mm-hmm. And even with like that short, it was something that had to kind of prove to these producers. Wow, that, now I really want to see it. it. Is there a way to watch that online? No, I've been looking for it. I've definitely been looking for it. Um, It has a very different ending. It's a little bit different tone, but it was it's nice that they were able to expand it. And I'm thinking about your career. This is the first feature that you've written and directed. Um, Have you done any shorts prior to this? Did you have to kind of um, prove to people that you could 
that you could do this, that you could handle a feature? Yeah, basically, there was a version of the movie that almost happened in New York a year before the Los Angeles version that did happen, and the and the the money, the financing fell through. So we went into pre-production, and then at the last minute, we they didn't have the rest of the financing, and the movie fell through. And at that point, uh, my friend who was the producer of the first version of the film said, you know, let's do let's do a short. He helped me do a short, so I did that to get experience. Um, doing the short, editing the short, which was a great experience, you know, and then I did have something to show people and it was helpful. It, and I think it's funny that even in your, your feature film, you have this character who wants to be a writer and director, your character, um, and who says to, uh, you know, Rhea Perlman's character that uh, she doesn't have that much experience, that she's only done a couple of shorts, I mm-hmm, think. Mm-hmm. It's... Which is true. <laughs> or one short. I think I say I've done one... a short. <laughs> yeah, one short. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. She's like, I, I did wonder, I was like, did did Heather also have to do this kind of convincing? Well, I think, you know, if you think about the world and that the world is kind of a sexist place, and I think about myself growing up in the entertainment business, and I think there weren't a lot of role models of women writing and directing. And as a kid, it's not like you are you look at, oh, you know, there's Steven Spielberg, there's Martin Scorsese, there's Francis Ford Coppola. You're not looking at a lot of female directors. So I don't even know if I was able to dream of wanting to do that at that point. And I mm-hmm. think maybe something that I did was that I would like men that were directors. And I think oh, that's so attractive that they're a director. They have this vision and and writers are so cool. So it was almost maybe me thinking, I can't be that, but I'm going to I want to be with someone like that, you know? Yeah. Which I think. Yeah. Then you realize maybe that's actually just what I want to be. And I don't need to be with that person. I should just do it myself. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The script that you wrote, too, it has um, a few moments of um, overt sexuality to it. It's it's really comical as well, but there's it doesn't shy away from um, certain subjects, specifically about female sexuality. And that's something that I really enjoyed. Um, And I think about that in terms of um, fatal attraction, which at the time, and this is 1987, that script, even though it's amazing, went out to 26 different directors before Adrian Lyne had said yes to it. Wow. Um, which sounds, you know, it seems pretty astounding to me today because it's the kind of film that people would die to make because, you know, it's it's got everything. But Juicy. people didn't want to touch it, you know? Like, mm-hmm. they didn't... Like, the lead character cheats on his wife in the first 10 minutes. And, you know, that was still kind of taboo, you know? How are you going to present that? Can they be even likable? Mm. And, you know... It's a really interesting thing that if I look at your movie, Half Magic, even some of the stuff that you're writing, which to me seems, you know, um, it it should be mainstream. It still feels a little bit taboo, Mm -hmm. you know, like have things changed that much? I'm not quite sure. Well, it's interesting because I was in a movie years ago where I talk about a female having an orgasm. And I think that they, rating-wise, had to cut that out. But it's weird because you see men having orgasms in movies. So why is it weird if a woman has an orgasm? I think I wanted to use the sexuality of a female orgasm to also just show, like, loving yourself and loving your body and loving your sexuality. And there's a plot where she feels like she needs to be with this one specific guy because he rocks her world sexually. And then he breaks up with her and she feels like, how can I have that great sex again without the person. And then it's a journey of like, well, how can I find it on my own? How can I feel good in my sexuality as a single woman? Mm-hmm. And you actually you have um, a scene of uh, cunnilingus of uh, <laughs> which is it's it's so weird for censors because they usually do want to censor that like that will give a movie an R rating more than just, uh, you know, shooting a gun and killing someone or, yeah. you know, 
regular kind of missionary like man sex or even like a blowjob or something. So wow. it's interesting to me that you have that as well um, in your film. And it's, you know, artfully covered up by uh, An- Angela's dress. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually but my it, girlfriend's dress. Her name is Michelle Jonas, and she makes these dresses. And sometimes she says, if you wear a Michelle Jonas dress, you get laid. So I put her in that dress in the scene where she gets laid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and you like you have the, the guy's head covered up by the dress. And I was like, does that have anything to do with censorship uh, in, in ratings? Or maybe it's just uh, an artful way to um, to show that without showing it. I guess it's a mixture of, you know, you don't want the movie to get an X rating. I knew it was going to get an R rating. And as well, Angela's actually really never done a sex scene before. She's really just mainly done comedies. And she's never played like a sexual part like that. And she Mm -hmm. actually did nudity as well in the film, which she's never done before. So I wanted her to be comfortable and I didn't want it to be too graphic, but I wanted it to be sexy and just show that, you know, she never, her husband never gave her oral sex. And then finally, she just had the best oral sex of her life when she thought her life was over and no one would ever find her attractive again. And I based Mm -hmm. this on actually a friend of mine who was married to this guy for so long and he never, he didn't like giving oral sex. And so she never got oral sex from him. And then after the divorce, she thought her life was over, that no man would ever find her attractive. She'd never fall in love again. And then she met this guy and basically all he wanted to do was like give her pleasure and give her oral sex. And I just thought, isn't that amazing moment in someone's life where they think their life's over and they just realize, oh my God, I just never even knew what I was missing out on. Yeah, it seems like a full circle uh, karma thing, you know. Maybe maybe that void was filled. <laughs> yeah, totally. But the the sex scene stuff, I think, is. I mean, uh, I, I would love to ask you about how you directed it because the the sex scene in Fatal Attraction, like some of these scenes, are iconic. Um, I know. If you remember, such good sex scenes in the elevator. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. the elevator. That the shot that like looks up and they're they're kind of in this uh, spotlight with shadows. Yeah. And, and then the one in the kitchen where um, he puts her up on the sink. Yeah. And you know, Glenn Close is like putting water on them and yeah. drinking water. And then um, there's a moment where Michael Douglas has his uh, pants down and he's kind of like waddling. And yeah. there's a funny moment. Yeah. But a lot of those I, I've learned were actually kind of um, uh, choreographed in the moment. Like they didn't even know how they were going to do any of these sex scenes. They just got in the place and they were trying to figure out an original way to do it. Yeah. But, um, the things that were really improvised was um, Michael Douglas had suggested that moment of waddling. Wow. And, and he was saying that um, basically if you don't add a moment of humor uh, into a sex scene, you know, like even if it's a serious sex scene, then people will kind of laugh anyway because they're uncomfortable. And so you, giving them a laugh point helps them focus and not be taken out of the scene, which I wow, thought was really brilliant. smart. Yeah. Isn't it? And yeah. so I really like that, you know, in your scenes, you know, the there's, there's moments of intimacy, but there is humor there, um, which, yeah. you know, Angela um, Kinsey during her sex scene, <laughs> can't stop talking. I know. I love that about her. Yeah. She was so funny. I mean, we had that written in there, but then she also improvised and added to that. And that's just one of the best moments in the movie. Oh, my God. You're so good at this. I've wanted to do this since I met you. That's what you were thinking the whole time? When we met at Walmart? Are you kidding me? It's kind of weird. Thank you for telling me. Because I was, like, thinking, oh, nice guy at Walmart. He, he buys, like, stuff in bulk. I get it. Oh, uh, oh, my God. Oh, God. Oh, God. 
when she was improvising that, what what was your what was your role as a director at that point? What were you What were you asking her to do? Were you just sitting back and letting her go, or I mean, it was written in the script that she keeps talking and like she's kind of freaking out, you know. But then she just improvised and added a lot of stuff. So one of my roles was like, I better not laugh and ruin this take because she was cracking me up and Jason, pretty much everybody. So I just thought, God, let her let her go with it. I mean, it's you know when someone improvises, you have to have the footage on one side that matches the other side. But his footage is just his head underneath her dress, so that was easy. <laughs> but um, it was just so fun. She came up with so many funny things, and it's just it was just fun to watch all the footage. I mean, I feel like that must have been difficult in the editing sessions, though. It's hard to know what to cut out because you're like, okay, I'm laughing at everything she said, but I can't make the scene 20 minutes long. So what do I cut out? You know, it's it's hard when you have improvisational comedians and you just love everything they do, but you have mm-hmm. to cut it down. You can't have the scene going on forever, and then the movie loses its momentum. Do you feel like um, uh, the next movie that you direct, do you think that you're going to do um, improv in the same way, have improvisational characters or, or actors rather? And then um, uh, do you think you'd be better able to rein them in? You know, what what do you think your process will be from now on? Well, I definitely think I'll have more experience. So I hope to just edit the script more before I shoot for one thing. And I mean, I think it's good to have a a little bit of improv in a movie because I think it makes the actors comfortable. It's not like, oh, get this line perfect. It's like bring some of you who you really are. And if you come up with something and that makes I think it makes the actors relax to know that they can also just bring something of their own to it. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, you know, it's hard because if somebody improvises on one one actor is improvising and one actor isn't. You have to match the takes. And if you don't have responses, I mean, I learned a lot about editing through this process. And going back to just like Angela's scene and and um, even your scene or Stephanie's scene of sex, I, I'm curious if there's anything that you picked up along the way in your career as an actor from directors who directed you in intimacy. Um, things, little tips that they, things that they did right with you that you wanted to help imbue in your own project? Well, when I work with Paul Thomas Anderson, he's very loving and supportive. So I guess I just wanted to be like that, not even thinking, oh, I want to be loving and supportive, but I just felt passionate about what I was doing and I just felt so grateful they were there. So I just felt like my heart was open and I just thought, oh, I just hopefully can feel comfortable and relaxed and just, I wanted to just make, I wanted them to feel like how appreciated they were in that moment so they could just do whatever they wanted. Did did he give you like a lot of time to to work through a scene or he would give you you know takes like a lot of takes sometimes but it was also just a general atmosphere of just feeling I don't know loved isn't exactly the right word because it's like you don't fully know the person but you feel a love and appreciation of just passion of what you're doing so I wanted to create that on the movie Mm -hmm. And we're going to take a quick break, and I'm going to come back and uh, ask you a few more questions about um, the the making of Half Magic and also Fatal Attraction. So we'll be right back. (laughs) Hi, this is your host, April Wolf of Switchblade Sisters, and I'm here today talking to Drea Clark, the evil stepmother of our podcast. Cackle, cackle. (laughs) I'll take that. (laughs) Um, We're here talking to you about why you should become a Maximum Fun donor, um, and specifically to Switchblade Sisters, too, to support us. Yes, support Switchblade Sisters. Hey, April, can I tell you a quick story? Yes, please, tell me a story. So um, I'm a big fan of Switchblade Sisters, as you know, because I'm a big fan of female filmmakers and of 
genre films in general. And so the combination of those two really hits my sweet spot. And I was having a conversation with my real life friend, Dave. And he said... Very real life friend. Very real life friend. And he said he was listening to an episode on my encouragement because he is also a genre and horror fan. And he listened to you speaking with Tina Mabry. And she was talking with you about Set It Off, an amazing film. Great and a great episode. Tina's the best. She's awesome. And I programmed her first film at Slamdance, which made me super excited. But what was really cool is he was listening to it. He got so excited that he went and tried to track down her first film called Mississippi Damned. And I almost burst into tears because I loved so much the idea that this dude who's really well-versed in film discovered a new working filmmaker that he'd never heard of, was so encouraged by how she talked about her craft with you, that he went and tried to find a film. That's great, right? It's amazing. And that's one of the things that we try to do at Switchblade is, you know, so many times when female film- filmmakers are interviewed, everyone's asking them, what's it like to be a female filmmaker? Oh. I hate that question. It's the worst, because really you can only say, I just get an extra director's chair for my vagina, and then all the rest is the same. Exactly. But on our show, we go straight into the craft. We go into what makes you mm-hmm. tick, why you want to do what you do, and the things that you love. And the the craft talk, I, I, I feel like every single episode that I record, I get a master class in filmmaking. Oh, 100%. You talked to Lynn Shelton about a film I'd never heard of, which for me is a total blow to the ego, Code 46. I think Code 46. I yep. don't even know if I got the me name too. right. Me too. Me too. And Same thing. Lynn, Michael Winterbottom. Exactly. Lynn talking about how she approached scenes between actors and the idea of building a science fiction story without having to change an entire world was mind-blowing. I was like, I want to make 12 movies like that right now. Exactly. And it's, you know, we hope that this show becomes an inspiration to people. Whether you're wanting to be a filmmaker, whether you want to be a writer, whether you just want to be like really good entrepreneur, whatever you want to do, it it feels good to hear people talk enthusiastically about what they love to do. Yes. And you, my friend, with your transitional lenses, you are the most <laughs> impeccably nerdy interviewer because you do such solid research. I'm going to have to give you major props for that. You do these sweet, sweet segues between the films that the people you're talking to have worked on and then the film you're discussing. And it's so clever and I love it so much. Which is what we did when Drea came on the show to talk about The Witch Who Came From the Sea and a movie that she produced. You did. You just, yeah, you exactly. That's what you did. The blending of those two things is great. And I think it adds a whole other layer of almost an academic approach, but that's really fun and conversational. I love it. I learned so much. I just pushed up my glasses. Your transitional lenses. My transitional lenses. Well, that's one of the things that we hope sets us apart is the fact that we do a ton of research and we want to be knowledgeable and we don't want to just be off the cuff, you know. We want to feel like we're giving people, you know, a full history lesson, but like fun school. Fun school. (laughs) Um, Not to keep quoting you at you, but another fun school thing that I loved is you talked to Lynn Shea, the actress, who's amazing. And anyone, if you don't know what Lynn Shea looks like, look her up and you'll be like, oh, I should know her. She should be a household name. Exactly. And you talked to her about The Shining, which means that Lynn Shea told stories about Jack Nicholson from the 1970s. And I do not know any other podcast that I can listen to that has actress Lynn Shea talking about coming up through 1970s as an actor, getting her first gig because of Jack Nicholson. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's an exciting new entry into film. 
Well, it's one of the things that we try to do as well as correct the record, because these mm. should be household names. We have Lin Shay, who is a fantastic actor and who is a great character actor. And, and every generation, she's kind of popped up as, as this person, you know, who is who's in our consciousness. But, you know, why don't we know her name personally? And it's one of those things where if she talks about The Shining, then maybe people will put her name with The Shining and start thinking about that and then elevate her name in their memory. I want people to remember women's names. It's as simple as that. It's very, that's simple, but not so simple. I know. I think there's also a great thing of introducing people to new movies. Like, like you said, we talked about The Witch Who Came From the Sea and the amount of people who said, what, come again then? Because they'd never <laughs> heard of it. And then we're like, this is the weirdest weird ball. And I loved, like for us, I know we were very gleeful about being able to bring that to a larger audience, a film from 1971 that's never really been on any massive radar, but is something so interesting to dig into. And I think, A, bringing that up and getting it in front of people, and then B, giving them all these avenues of thought when they watch it themselves is such a cool treat. And that's what we try to do with Switchblade Sisters, is we build community. And the way that you can help support us building that community is by supporting our show, Switchblade Sisters and Maximum Fun. To do that, you can donate and become a member at MaximumFun.org slash donate. There's memberships starting from as low as $5 a month, all the way up to your heart's desire, hey, 1000 And now back to the interview with Heather Graham. And we're back. You're listening to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here talking today to Heather Graham about the movie Fatal Attraction. Hi, Heather. Hi. One of the things that I I love about uh, Adrian Lyne's direction of this movie is that he's really, really meticulous as um as a director. He uh, Glenn Close said that he spent an hour working with the makeup team wow. to decide what kind of lip line her character would have. You know. Wow. Um, and in the end, they gave her like this clean but professional makeup look that, you know, over the course of the picture just kind of deteriorated into this uh, smudged black liner mm. and no lipstick. And you look at that and it tells the story of this character, right? Mm. Um, they even obscured part of her hair. She was always like a quarter obscured by her hair. It was mm. kind of just in her face. So you couldn't quite know what she was thinking or who she was. Mm. And, you know... I, when you're making a movie yourself, that's it's a different kind of experience of having control over things. Did that excite you, the possibility that you could kind of get into like the little details, the nitpicky stuff and, and create it for yourself? Yeah, it is really exciting. I mean, you get to choose, you know, the DP and the production designer and the clothes. And I feel like there was an aspect where you do have control. But then there's another aspect where it's just something just unfolds and you don't like someone's just going to do whatever they're going to do. And it was also just exciting to sit back and just watch and just be the watcher of other people doing their craft. I'd love to talk about just even, uh, you know, hair, makeup and costuming because you've got these people who are in Los Angeles. They're of a certain uh, uh, social circle. Mm -hmm. um, And then you're doing the... um, the what the the like the vagina um <laughs> yeah the empowerment talk. class yeah mm-hmm. yeah and um <laughs> you know 
how do you how do you select what this is going to look like? I guess it's from different, you know, there's there's different things in my life that I took it from. There's just like an idea that I wanted the movie to feel real, but I also wanted there to be a magical element, but not to the extreme where you don't believe that it's real. Just like real life magic where things happen mm-hmm. in life and you go, that's such a weird coincidence. It feels magical, but you can still believe it's real. I wanted the movie to look like that where it looks good, but it's not super glossy fake good. I mean, the, the style of it is really light and bright. Um, and it does feel very uh, Los Angeles in a way, like a real Los Angeles, not necessarily a uh, a made up Los Angeles. Yeah, I wanted because I felt like I'd, underneath there's subject matter about, you know, sexism. Um, there's th- I wanted to make a female empowerment movie, but not make it feel like so angry feminist that I am basically. But I wanted to keep it like <laughs> lighthearted and sexy and sort of keep an element of humor where underneath it there's a message like sexism is bad, basically, you know. <laughs> Uh, thinking of that in vagina empowerment, you know, session, you also have like the humor of like, well, maybe, maybe not quite this, you know, maybe this is a little too extreme. Fear, so what? Fear, so what? Failure, so what? Failure, so what? My pussy is strong. My pussy is strong. My pussy is a genius. My pussy is a genius. We must listen. Have you been to something like that before? I mean, I've been to a bunch of wacky classes and I actually love them. So I wanted to celebrate that kind of a class where women get together and go, you know, we want to unplug from this patriarchal system and find the joy and pleasure of just being a woman and the divine feminine and celebrate ourselves and just feel good at whatever age, whatever size, however we look and find solidarity with each other. So it's not just like we feel like we're together, we're women, we're a sisterhood, and we are on the same team, and we're celebrating each other. And we feel like we're not alone in this this struggle of being a woman in this man's world. The thing about, um, and relating this back to Fatal Attraction, there is... <sighs> There is a lot of controversy about that movie, about, you know, is it is it good for women? Is it is a bad portrayal of women? But I, you know, I do think that it's one of those movies where, like, in a different world, maybe Ann Archer's character, the wife, and maybe Glenn Close's character, this, you know, mistress, they would have been friends, you hmm, know? Mm-hmm. Um, both of their characters are very well drawn. And, like, Glenn Close in this movie, despite the fact that she uh, ends up you know, being kind of like this evil villain portrayed that way. We we get to understand why she is that way. And and to me, that's something that's really valuable. Um, you know, we see that uh, in, in your film, right, Angela's character is a mess and is drunkenly <laughs> calling um, her ex, you know, like really drunkenly calling. And, and that, I mean, honestly, there's also a scene of that in Fatal Attraction. Operator, I've been trying to get 555-8129-212. Recording says it's been disconnected. Operator, this is a real emergency, please. You need to give me that number. Well, fuck you! Like, mm-hmm. if you remember, there's, like, Glenn Close's oh character, Alex Forrest, is, like, drunk on her bed. Like, 
eating all of these snacks, you know. Yeah. It's, there's like an empty thing of Oreos and she's calling I think Dan's we relate house. to Glenn Close, even though she's the villain and like whatever. I felt like when I watched that movie, you know, you're like, okay, she's bad, she's, but you relate to her. Like an affair can drive you crazy. Like she's just so alive and she's so emotional. And I think you're kind of weirdly on her side in that movie. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. And I think maybe the first time that I watched it... Um, I, I went in thinking that she was more of a villain. Mm-hmm. And then watching it later on in my life, you know, having having matured and, you know, having really kind of waken up to uh, uh, feminism as I was not maybe when I was 16 or mm-hmm. something, um, it, it does feel uh, like a much fuller character and mm. someone who I sympathize with far more than I did when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm curious, do you... Okay, so you remember the ending of Fatal Attraction. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to get into too many specifics of that. Um, but to me, that felt like, a, you know, watching it, it was like a little bit of a departure because we, you know, we see more of a, a caricature mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of who Alex is. Mm-hmm. But it was really interesting to find out that that wasn't the original ending. Wow. What was the original ending? So the original ending uh, is Alex Forrest um, sitting in her bathroom alone, crying, and she takes a kitchen knife to her throat and slits her throat. Oh, my God. And it's Dan takes the heat for it. And so the police come and get him. And then uh, Ann Archer's character finds the tapes of, you know, Glenn Close talking to him and listens to them and realizes, you know, what her husband did. Can you understand? Can you? I'm just asking you to acknowledge your responsibilities. Is that so bad? I don't think so. I I don't think it's unreasonable. And, you know, another thing is that you thought that you could just walk into my life and turn it upside down without a thought for anyone but yourself. They played it for people in the theater, and people didn't like it. Hmm. Um, they wanted this Alex Forrest character to get, um, you know, uh, uh, to, to be punished. Right, right. I mean, I wonder, have you watched it recently? Because sometimes you think you watch these movies at the time and you're fully on board. But then later when you watch it, you look back and go, wow, that was really sexist. (laughs) Yes. Is it? Like, I mean, they're like, oh, because ultimately, like, he decided to have an affair, too. But then she obviously she does crazy things in the movie. But sometimes it's just this Madonna horror thing. Oh, the wife is perfect. And the whore is terrible. But what if they're both just like these kind of complicated people? But yeah, they made her into like, she's terrible. She's the whore. But sometimes I think, oh, this is kind of a sexist storytelling. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, honestly, up until that point, I think the film is pretty um, even-handed about, you know, who do you sympathize with and and why. I mean, she does the thing with a pet, as you said, which is pretty terrible. Oh, God. I mean, yeah, that's the terrible thing. But I think even even then, even then, if we had ended it in a different way, I Mm -hmm. think I could still... I could still be a little bit sympathetic with her, but mm-hmm. she, you know, and it, it's kind of stripped away from her. And actually, Glenn Close didn't want to reshoot the ending. Mm-hmm. Um, she so that scene in the for... bathtub was such a memorable scene, right, where she 
I don't know. She, I don't know if we're allowed yeah. to say it, but jumping out of the water. I feel like that's a memorable movie, mo- movie moment. I will never forget. It was yes. like, and it's so. It, I, I'll never forget that moment. And she said, um, she actually had, even though she didn't want to do that scene, she didn't want it. You know, she wanted it to be um, very close to uh, like the real psychology of someone who is, you know, damaged and going through this. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though she didn't want to reshoot that scene, she had to do it um, in in that bathtub fifty to sixty times. Oh my god. I know. Can you imagine? Ugh. I'm I'm wondering if if in your life, like what what has been in your career, kind of the most difficult scene that you've had to do that kind of put you into a really vulnerable place. Well, I mean, it's so weird. But the first thing that popped in my head was a commercial I did where they made me do Whoa. like something sixty times about stupid about hair. You know? Oh but, God, um, really? Sometimes as an actor, when I get a lot of takes, I actually like it, even though you know I like being able to have so many times to do it that hopefully you have. You know, you can do your best work. I do remember one time I worked with James Toback um, with Robert Downey Jr. We did like 23 takes of a scene, but it didn't really bother me that I was having fun, actually. (laughs) I mean, yeah, you've worked with a lot of people who are in the news recently, I know. I feel like looking at the list of all these, like, sexual harassers, I'm like, I knew a lot of these gross guys. (laughs) And you made it out. Like, you're still making films. That's the thing. I survived. Knock on wood, I did not get raped. You know, I got harassed, but luckily nothing violent. And um, yeah, I'm very grateful that I made it through that. It's weird that we have to have this conversation, you know, where it's like, I'm grateful that I didn't (laughs) Didn't get raped. What a world. Yeah. Oh, God. But you you made it through. You, you That's why it's good with... that women get to make stories and tell our side of the story. I feel like yes. in the past, it's like so many films are made by men that the female point of view is not always respected, which is why all these stories haven't come out till now, because nobody really listened to us when we talked about it before. And now, hopefully, with film and TV and different mediums, like the female voice and the female gaze is something that's being heard more and being expressed more. And that we as women, now I'm obviously... Maybe you're already expressed, but let's say me that I feel more able to express my voice and more brave about expressing my voice. When did that hit you when you realized that? I'm realizing it every day. It's like if you look at life and you're just used to seeing it a certain way. It's like if you live in America and you go to China and you're like, oh, everyone does things differently here. I look at my life and I go, it's really weird how sexist the world is. And I never really thought about it. Like men greenlight movies. Men decide how to distribute movies. Men write about movies when they come out. Men review the movies. I mean, obviously, there's exceptions. There's you. There's people that are female. But we're being fed all of our media through men. So is it no wonder that like female like we as women don't feel totally represented or the you know the confidence that we have the right to tell our stories or feel the way we feel about our stories if it's different than how men see them i'm i'm curious for drugstore cowboy i was thinking about that movie the other day um and that's a it's a chance for you to do like a really sensitive portrayal you know <laughs> or a, of of someone you know like the kind of person who does exist yeah and and not just kind of making it a caricature um what did you do for that role well to be honest at that point i had never really done drugs i i had smoked pot you know and i drank i drank alcohol but i had never done any of these drugs that they were doing so i actually did research on what is it like to do drugs because <laughs> i had never done drugs and i you know i read william burroughs and I, I there was a book from drugstore cowboy that i read you know you just you 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 do all the research that you can of, of you know what are the effects you know I talk to people who did drugs or do drugs and try to understand how to play that and yeah the, the psychology of why would I do this and 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 why am I what is my emotional what are my emotional reasons for doing this when you're doing that research do you ever uh, 
Do you feel like you can speak with directors and um, and let them know what you found and if you have to kind of reorient a character ever? Well, I love asking a lot of questions. And also, I feel like in another life, I could be a psychologist or a therapist. I always want to know, well, why does this person do this? And what's motivating them? And I just think it's mm-hmm. so interesting. So, yeah, I do talk to the director and say, well, why do you think this person's doing this or in the scene? You know, how do you see this? It's, I mean, I could ask question after question. And I basically, when I'm acting, I just sit with the script for, for days and hours and weeks and, and, and try to picture myself in the situation and understand what's motivating me in all the different moments and what I'm thinking. And that's the cool thing about being an actor. It's like you have to under you have to be thinking the thoughts of somebody doing things that maybe you would never do something like this, but you have to understand why they're doing it. I have heard from actors that David Lynch is a really great person to ask questions of. Have I mean, I worked him? with him. You know, he actually like, as a director, he doesn't necessarily talk to you that much. He almost just creates this atmosphere where you just feel like so creative. It wasn't like he sat down and said, I remember when I was in Twin Peaks, I said, well, tell me about the character. And he said, well, she's like a finely tuned machine, like a sports car. But if some little (laughs) thing goes out of whack, you know, it just can fall all apart. But she's just this finely tuned machine. I just remember him saying that. And I remember thinking, I don't know how to incorporate this into like how to play this role, (laughs) but it's really cool. Like he's so cool, you know. (laughs) Um, Okay, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. I'm going to ask you a little bit about uh, location. Mm. Hi, this is your host, April Wolf of Switchblade Sisters, and I'm here talking to Drea Clark, the evil stepmom of Switchblade Sisters. I love that so much. Really, I really do. Well, it's, you know, keeping with genre films, mm-hmm. there's always an evil stepmom. And, you know, what's in my heart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, April, I know the Max Fun Drive is underway, and I feel like it's not just donating one at a time. You get to be a member, a proper member, correct? You get to become a part of our Max Fun community. You get to become a member, yes. Which I love. That's so much cooler than just, oh, yeah, I'll do this thing, especially if you're in a town like L.A. or if you're in a town like White Bear Lake, where I'm from. Um, there's <laughs> shout something, out to White Bear Lake. Shout out White Bear Lake, Minnesota. There's something very cool about membership of supporting and being part of something that you really love. And there's something cool about getting things for it. And I feel like I you mean, get stuff above and beyond the sweet, sweet ear tones of the podcast themselves. I mean, I would love for all of us to give altruistically, sure, but gifts are really cool, too. They really are. And I would love to tell people what they might get in return. Hit me. For some of their donations. For instance, ooh, for $5 a month, becoming a member for $5 a month, you get so much bonus content that you could run it for like six days straight. And it's like super cool secret interviews that were t- yeah, conducted. Tons and of like- super cool secret interviews conducted from all of our shows. Um, but one of the things that Switchblade Sisters has contributed to this is a nice little bonus episode with the ladies of Lady to Lady podcast. Oh. And we are talking about one of the best action films of all time, Speed. No, it's so good. I know. If you've ever wanted to hear us really get into speed, but also do it with a bunch of hilarious comedians, that's our bonus show. Pop quiz, hot shot. Oh, God, it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. Um, and that's at the $5 level. That's a $5 level. So yeah. let's say I have $10 in my pocket burning a hole, and I want to be part of Maximum Fun. What do I do? Okay, so for $10 a month, 
you get all of the exclusive content that we talked about before. But also, 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 yes. you get to choose from one of 38 enamel pins designed by Megan Lincott. What? An enamel, an enamel pin? I know. Okay, for real, those are super cool. And I know that because much people much cooler than myself wear them on their jean jackets or what other cool garments they wear. Yes. Um, and I love the design for Switchblade Sisters. Oh, my God. The design for Switchblade Sisters, she did such a great job. So dope. It's. I mean, you can get it and give it to a Switchblade Sister of yours. Right? Everyone or you should can keep have it for their yourself. own Switchblade Sister. Plus, there's the double meaning because it's this glorious podcast and it's also a righteous film in its own. Like, it is, true. You're going to look yeah. cool to many, many different groups. Um, and we would we would love to see people out and about wearing a Switchblade Sisters pin, and you would look dope. Um, and then also for that ten dollars a month, you get a Max Fun membership card. See, I love cards. <laughs> yeah, just put it in your wallet. You're like, I am a Max Fun member. And then when you see us at events, you can just flash it, and we'll be like, oh Hey. So much street cred. Part of the fam. So much membership card Part street cred. Part of the cred. fam. Hey, for 20 bucks, is it possible that I could get myself a Max Fun family cookbook? Oh my God, it is. <laughs> it's so possible. For $20 a month, we'll send you the Max Fun family cookbook. And so many of our shows contributed a recipe, you know, like a family recipe even, like going back. And the recipe that Switchblade Sisters contributed is really close to my heart because it's the one that my grandmother made for her uh, late night chili dogs and jello shots at the bar my family owns. <laughs> that paints such a good picture. That's not your normal grandma offering. No, I actually, I called her on the phone and I said, Grandma, can you give me the recipe for your, your chili dogs and your jello shots? And she's like, I know how, I only know how to make it for 50 people at a time. And I said, great. So the recipes are for (laughs) 50 people at a time. So instead of having to double it up, you might have to shrink it down. Exactly. But you will have that recipe in your hot hands. Oh, yeah. And I gave a vegan version as well because I am vegan myself. I cannot eat the chili dogs. Two for one. Yeah, that I, yeah. 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 It was very thoughtful of you. You know, I I care about the vegans and vegetarians in our audience as well, you know. We're we're a lot about blood and gore on this show, but, you know, maybe not in our diet. You know what blood and gore surrounds? Your heart. It does. It does. Um, I think the cookbook also comes with some space-themed cookie cutters that I really want my grubby paws on. I love them. And then also comes with all the bonus materials and that stuff, too. Like, it's it's got cocktail recipes. It's got everything. You guys are in I love it. And then for $35 a month, you get a one liter juice carafe beautifully and permanently engraved with a Max Fun Rocket logo. Oh my gosh, speaking of cocktails. I know, I know. The, oh, actually, you could. You could fill it with whatever beverage concoction is in the cookbook, then pour that into your sweet carafe. Yeah. This is actually really cool. I know. The, the Rocket logo is one of my favorite things. It's one of my favorites too. And one huge thanks. To all the members who already support our show, you guys have no idea how much you mean to us, to everyone here at Max Fun, but, you know, specifically to me. Thank you so much for supporting everything that we do and telling people that you want to hear more from female filmmakers. And so if you guys donate, you can become... Where do you donate? Uh, well, 
funny that you asked. You can donate at <laughs> MaximumFun.org slash donate. Oh, my gosh. They made it real simple. I know. It's super easy. There's, like, little tabs. You click on the little tabs, and you say, I want to donate $5 a month. I want to donate $10 a month. And you flick it in. And then, and, and then you can also designate that you listen to Switchblade Sisters and and help support our show specifically. Oh, that would really warm my cold heart. Oh, and that's the only thing we want to do on this show is warm Drea's cold heart. Okay, now that it's warmed, let's get back to our interview with Heather Graham. Okay, and welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here talking today with Heather Graham about fatal attraction. <laughs> One of the things I thought was really interesting about this movie when I had done some research on it was that Adrian Lyne um, couldn't find an apartment that he really loved in New York um, that was for this family. So he basically just rented the same apartment that he had shot nine and a half weeks in. He did all the good sex movies, right? Like Nine and a Half Weeks, <laughs> Fatal Attraction, Unfaithful. He was like the sex movie director. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was. He was the sex movie director. And he the, this apartment is very iconic now. I Actually, I wonder where it is. I'm not sure where it is. But whoever is living in, in this apartment. Wow. I wonder if they're having good wow. sex in that apartment. I mean. Yeah, maybe there's some good mojo in there. Uh, but it, it's, a, it's a weird thing because the apartment, um, the second that he got it, everyone... Um, who was on set, uh, who was on crew, was really sad because this apartment is really cramped. Everything is like really small rooms, really um, narrow hallways. And apparently people had to kind of take turns getting into the set hmm. to um, to set dress it or, you know, only Adrian Lyne and like maybe the cinematographer and the sound person could be in the room at one time. You know, you couldn't have people around. And so they actually had to shoot the whole film with long lenses as opposed to a wide lens. Hmm. Um, but it turned out really well um, because the long lens look made everything feel a little bit more claustrophobic. Hmm. You know, like you're you're kind of trapped with these characters and you're trapped with Glenn Close. Hmm. But I found that really interesting that, you know, they had originally had this plan for, you know, a wide lens. But in, if they had used it, then they would see people, you know, crouching out, hmm. <laughs> trying to get out of frame. And in your experience, you know, how how did you get your locations? Were you were you thinking about um, begging my friends? <laughs> begging, was it begging your friends? I mean, because it is it is a really difficult part of movie making that mm-hmm. we would you know we don't often talk about. But you know, does it does the location come first for you, and then you just figure out you know how this is going to represent the scene or this character? I think that you have an idea in your mind of what you want the location to be and the vibe. And I guess, yeah, growing up in L.A. and feeling this vibe of what real L.A. is like, you want it to represent something real that you've experienced. But, I mean, we got very lucky that people were very generous with us as an independent film with not a big budget. We shot, actually, Angela's house is my best. One of my close friends, Jamal Hamadi, he does my hair. He let Mm -hmm. us shoot in his house, which is us. It was a beautiful house. And we got really like some friends that own like restaurants and bars, like let us shoot there for I think one of the people that I knew gave us like the locations for free, which were amazing L.A. places like No Vacancy and Dirty Laundry and Butchers and Barbers and um, just like cool places that would cost a lot of money if you were, you know, a studio film. Yeah. I'm really curious about um, 
you know, because the the whole thing with like locations and and all the stuff that that really informed the the cinematographer's work. Your cinematographer, um, you know, how did you find that person, and how did you guys like develop the style? Well, the way I wanted the movie to look was almost like a European vibe where it's kind of enhanced reality, um, where it's not like an overblown, brightly lit Hollywood romantic comedy where it's just so bright and everything seems so perfect. It's not real. But I also Mm -hmm. didn't want it to look like totally ugly and gritty, like a sort of dark drama. I wanted it to be something where you like, I buy that's real, but there's something about it that's a little bit better like it's slightly enhanced like the, it's like magic hour or it's just like a moment where the lighting is good and um, just kind of how there's magic in daily life yeah i was going to say there does seem to be so, a lot of natural light that you're using in in this film i didn't want it to feel fake like i didn't want it to feel like oh this is a fake hollywood movie i wanted it to be like these are real situations and these are real people and this is real life but it just it looks kind of delicious i'm going to ask one more one more big question for, for you before we before we go today, um, and that has to do with um, uh, Anne Archer and um, her character. There's a moment in this in Fatal Attraction where I felt everything was really really real. It was after the boiled bunny. It was after all of this stuff. Mm. It's a really memorable scene where um, her husband finally tells her that he's been cheating, and um, she pulls her arm away and she screams at him. You know what's the matter with you? And it's this really simple but beautiful line. Um, that And that actually came from these improv exercises mm. that she was doing with Michael Douglas. Mm. And, you know, all three of these lead actors said it was such a collaborative and creative set. And so they were able to come up with these really honest, honest lines. And I'm wondering for you, have there been any moments in your career where you just felt like you got... You got to offer everything that you had in a scene where you got to improv, where you felt that, you know, if your character needed a line right here, then you were heard. Um, You know, when has that happened for you in your career? I mean, to be honest, I think I've always been a little bit shy and... um this movie was that for me because it's like I'm just going to put my point of view out in the world and I it's okay like I'm just going to say because sometimes it's scary to offer up improv and I've taken some improv classes because I've worked with a lot of comedians and it can be intimidating because you just look at them and go wow you're so brave and you know how to do comedy so I took these classes and what I learned from them was like just say whatever comes out of your head just just say it even if it's, you don't know if it's good or not and that's how I wrote the script I'm just like I'm just going to write stuff down and even if it's not good I'm just going to write it down and it's kind of just brave and then you just edit it and you work on it and um, yeah just putting yourself out there is so scary and I, I Ann Archer is great I wanted to say she is great she's so lovable too in that movie she's really she's just like so beautiful and lovable and real and yeah. I, I think and, and that seems to me maybe like you know everything you're saying about half magic is even though it's comedy you're going for some kind of like realness in, in the emotions of these women and and who they are yeah and and I, I think that that's a really, really wonderful place for you to start because every character I've ever seen you play, it seems like there's a really uh, solid emotional core where I can say, <laughs> oh, that's probably Heather Graham. You know, there's there's something that's kindness in there. Um, how how do you think that in the future, you know, what are, what's the biggest lesson that you that you learned on this and how to run a set so that it's it feels like that? 
It was just so fun to do something that I felt passionate about that I thought had a point of view of saying something that I wanted to say, which is that I want to empower women. And um, just even talking about it now, it's so fun. I'm actually talking about subject matter that I care about so much, which is sexism and empowering women. And and it's just so fun to tell a story that's something that you're personally passionate about. So I guess what I've learned in the past is like how important it is to be passionate about what you're doing. And if we turn it back to Fatal Attraction, I mean, Glenn Close's character, however flawed and villainous she was, she was very passionate. That <laughs> <laughs> so is something that you can never, you know, say that she was she was not passionate. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much, Heather, for joining us today on Switchblade Sisters, and I wish you all the luck on your movie. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. And thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. Next week, we'll be talking to Half Baked and Billy Madison director Tamara Davis about the heat. If you like what you're hearing, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we will read it on air. Just like this, DJ Lee J says, Love all the guests, and April is such a warm, engaging, brilliant host. Addicted. Oh, God. Hey, but also take care of yourself. Addiction is a serious thing. Um, and if you wanted to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at, at @switchbladepod or email us at switchbladesisters at maximumfun.org. Please check us out on our Facebook group, too, facebook.com slash group slash switchbladesisters. And please remember to check out MaximumFun.org slash donate to contribute to our show during the Max Fun Drive. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. This is a production of MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.